as one from which men, whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a lamb, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And though he had not done, he had done no violence, there was, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, it has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. At the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous, righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for, their, for the transgressors. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the worship that we've gotten to experience already and the, the, the words that we've gotten to speak together and hear. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I know some of them are struggling. Some of them are dealing with grief. Some are, are scared or fearful about the future. They're fearful of the past. They are wondering, Lord, how you're going to use them, what you have in store for them, how things in their life will be restored or reconciled, how relationships will be uh, brought back together, how people will be united. Lord, uh, Lord, I just pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. Lord, I pray that you would give them strength. Lord, I pray that you would give them trust in you. Lord, I pray that in their grief, that they would be hopeful, that they would grieve with hope, that they would grieve knowing, Lord, that you will not forsake them, you will not leave them, you will not isolate them, you will never abandon them. Nothing can separate you from the, them from the love of your love, Lord, the love of Christ. Nothing will separate them. Lord, I pray that they would understand that, they would feel that, they would experience that, they would know that. Lord, I pray for our students who are gone for spring break and will be coming back today, most likely. Lord, I pray for safe travels. Lord, I pray for those who, who are able to come on the spring break trip this week. I know a lot of them were not saved. A lot of them were lost. We praise you that you brought them. We thank you that they came. We thank you that they were interacting with us, that they heard devotions and Bible studies and had conversations. Friendships were made. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, seeds would be planted that would grow into uh, salvation. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would show us where you're working amongst the people here in Evansville and our community. And, and Lord, I pray that you would show us uh, what opportunities we should invest in, Lord. 
Lord, I pray that our church would be a church that is, um, Lord, that we are looking for ways to be a part of what you're doing. Lord, I pray as we open your word and as we talk about uh, the subjects that you have on, you have for us to talk about, Lord, I pray that you would lead us and you would convict us and you would encourage us. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Right. I was in uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, this past week with some of our with some of our college students, and um, that's why none of them are here because they all went home after we got back, and uh, to go see their parents. And it's good to be back. We've had we had some accidents. Lincoln, our, our son, broke his leg on the trip. Uh, the thought of a, a almost two year old breaking their leg is a bit haunting. Uh, if you don't know the story, I was carrying him on a trail, and it was an easy trail. It was all paved and everything. We got to the waterfall. There was a rock there. There was no visible evidence of that it was going to be slippery. Little did I know, it was slippery. I slipped, and he, I fell, and he was on my back, and he twisted his leg, and he got a slight break. Um, and this will be just to show you that I'm not, I am clumsy, but this wasn't the only reason why I fell. But other people also fell at the same spot. Um, and so uh, hopefully the uh, Smoky Mountain Rangers will be able to fix that particular problem so that more, not any more two-year-olds get their legs broken on their, on their hike. Um, but I, we were in, um, I was in Knoxville. We, on Monday, we went to the University of Tennessee, and we were prayer walking with uh, BCM ministry there, the Baptist Collegiate Ministry there. And um, so our students were taken around the campus, and we were praying for different departments and fraternities and sororities and such and such. Um, and we were down in Market Square, which is an area, kind of a restaurant um, um, shop area in Knoxville. And there was a, a monument there uh, about the women's suffrage. And it had some names of important figures uh, during that, that time. And I was trying to think, how long did those women protest and work to try to get the vote? And I had thought maybe it was a few, like maybe a few decades, but it was a long period of time. It was almost like 50 years of these women were, were protesting and, and making people aware uh, that they didn't have votes. They couldn't, couldn't speak. They had no representation, in a sense, in, in Washington. And um, the, the vote was only for men. And um, so we wanna talk, I want to talk about protests. You had me thinking about protest and we live in a culture now that we see a lot of protesting we see a lot of protesting on college campuses we see protesting in cities um, and one major protest that I, I want to talk about here is the protest in 1999 um, some of y'all probably remember this this particular event um, and so this kind of uh, before I get into that the title if you have been to jail for justice and you're a friend to me we're looking at verses 7 through 9. And I want to talk about protest. And, you know, we have the right to protest. You know, we have the right to assembly. We have a right to free speech. So that's in the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. And, see, and people express this freedom and this right as they protest against injustice that they see. Uh, just a definition of political protest is the perception of people that they are deprived in relation to others. Political protest involves attempts by individuals or groups to address or stop perceived injustice within a political system without overturning the system itself. So our main idea is that Jesus suffered without protest to display his submission to God's redemptive will and inaugurate his kingdom. 
a few purposes that we want to accomplish is to explain the submission of the servant to suffering for his father's redemptive will, to explain the destiny of his suffering was the triumph of his kingdom over the kingdom of darkness, and to stress the characteristic of his kingdom is servanthood. So, 1999, um, this is kind of in the summer before this major protest. In July, of, in July, 16, July 16th, 1999, uh, a writer of the Wall Street Journal, Helen Cooper, she writes, she warned of an impeding and massive mobilization against globalization being planned for the end of the year Seattle World Trade Organization conference. And even the London Independent newspaper said that the World Trade Organization had appeared to side with the organizers of the rapidly developing storm of protests. And since they're saying that the, the World Trade Organization, if you don't know what that is, it's an organization that basically of developing and developed nations that work together for trade and other labor type issues globally. And so there were these people that were, who, who were against globalization. They were against the World Trade Organization. Because then what was happening was that the major developing countries like the United States and Great Britain and other developed countries in Europe and the West, they, they started the organizations and they kind of, pulled, they kind of pushed their weight around and, and basically tell developing countries how that they are going to enact certain labor laws and certain global trading issues. And so a lot of people were against the World Trade Organization. They were having this conference in Seattle in 1999. It was like their millennial talks, and extremely important talks. And a lot of people were very angry about what the World Trade Organization was doing and then will do in the future from these talks. And so there was an organization called the Direct Action Network, or DAN, that created this, over a period of time, created this network to get people, not only from the United States, but people from all over the world, to come to Seattle and protest the conference of the World Trade Organization. The conference was supposed to start November the 30th, 1999, in Seattle. And so they called this, this protest N30, standing for November 30th. And that what they wanted to do was to take power, taking, pa uh, taking back democracy and returning power to the people. Because they saw power being transformed, uh, being kind of transitioned to only developed, powerful nations like the United States or Great Britain or France or any other countries, and also corporations. And so they wanted to protest these meetings. So 40,000 protesters blocked intersections from hotels to the convention center to the delegates to the World Trade Organization meetings were unable to meet. 40,000 people marched to the intersections in front of this convention center. There's a few pictures. They marched and they protested very loudly their anger against the World Trade Organization and their policies and what they were beating to discuss in an act. Global injustice, you see this picture here. A lot of people screaming, a lot of people angry, uh, you, you saw pictures of people holding their arms and, and being united together against what the World Trade Organization was going to talk about. And, then, and, and then on December the 1st, you had the Seattle Police Department that were trying to move them from the intersections so that the meetings could be held. And they were pepper spraying and, and throwing tear gas and all kinds of things. But the people continued to protest and continued to block delegates from entering the meeting. So on December 1st, that evening, 630 protesters were arrested by the Seattle Police Department for their protest, even though their protest had a permit to protest, and they were doing it peacefully somewhat. There were some people who were anarchists who 
who, who broke windows, who smashed Starbuckses and Nike stores. And, but that was a few of, of the people. Most of the people were, who were saying that they were anti-violence, that they were not trying to be violent. They were just trying to protest injustice. None of y'all probably don't remember that. Some of you are too young to remember that. You know what? I didn't know nothing about it. I was in the ninth grade. I knew nothing about this protest. I had no idea that it happened until I watched a movie randomly on TV about it and was somewhat interested in it. But the, the protest that I remember is Occupy Wall Street. You, know, you remember Occupy Wall Street in 2012 where people uh, were in Wall Street in the financial sector of, the, of New York and they protest injustice, protest um, uh, income dis- uh, inequality, they, 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 they kind of st- stood for the 99% because the 1% of people in the, in the United States had all the wealth and the 99% had nothing and they were the poor, so they stood for those people. They stood for income inequality, and so you had all these people basically living in tents and, and sleeping bags outside in the financial sector of Wall Street in New York protesting injustice when it comes to in- income inequality. So... We're, we're, in, we're, we're, we're familiar with protests. Some of us maybe remember, maybe from pictures or, or videos of the, of the protests during the Vietnam War. The 1971 protests in D.C., the May, the May Day Vietnam protest, protesting against the war in Vietnam. There was 35,000 people that protested in the city of New, uh, in D.C. against this war. So protests, we live in a country that gives you the right to protest, and people do it very often. And you know, I wonder, like, why do people protest? What is it about, that, what, what is causing them to be so angry that they will gather thousands of people who, are, who agree on, that, uh, they agree that they're angry, they go out there and they scream and they protest and they endure um, temper, uh, tear gas and pepper spray. Why do people protest? Well, again, like I said, there's, there's a feeling that there's an imbalance of power, that someone has too much power and they have no power. Or someone has all the means of production and they have no means of production. That was some of what Karl Marx talked about in his Communist Manifesto, that the the means of production, that those who are owners of the means of production have all the power. And the people is the labor power and they are exploited. And so there's a need of revolution. There's a need to overthrow this power because power is imbalanced. There's not an equality of power. And so there needs to be a laying, laying uh, flat of power to equal people's power. So I want to talk about power and protest. So the first point here that we see in Isaiah 53, 7, and 8 is the form of a servant. The form of a servant. In, in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. So how, kind of three kind of points here through this is his treatment. How is he treated? How is the suffering servant treated? He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed. He was, he was one who was, who was beaten. He was one who was, who was slapped upon. He was one who was spit upon. He was one who was falsely tried. He was one that was uh, scorned. He was one that was crucified. He was one that was put a, a, thorn of, a crown of thorns on his head. He was quite physically oppressed. He was punished. We've already talked a lot about this, the treatment that Jesus experienced on the cross, what he experienced in his death. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. 
He was mistreated. He was given, he, was, he, had, he had this mockery of a trial, right? When he was taken before Caiaphas, when he was taken before Pilate, they had nothing against him, but they brought false testimony, presented lies. He was afflicted. He was mistreated. He was not given a fair trial. He was not shown his rights as a person. If he was in America, he wasn't given his, his, a fair trial with, a, with a bi, an unbiased jury. And what was his response to his treatment? He opened not his mouth, it says. He was silent before his accusers. We even see that in Matthew 26, 57 through 68, that when he was brought before Caiaphas, all this false testimony that was, that was presented about him, he didn't say anything against it. He didn't say that's a lie. He didn't present um, um, alternate evidence. He just said, actually, this is what, I, what did happen. He didn't have a lawyer who presented his case. He was silent. There was those who took counsel against him. What did Pilate say? Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Do you not hear these things? Why aren't you speaking against it? Why are you so silent? And what does Pilate say? He says, what evil has he done? What evil has he accomplished? What evil has he acted upon? He, and there is no evil that he did, but yet he didn't speak against him. He didn't defend himself. He didn't have anyone else defend him. And it's interesting how the prophet here talks about kind of using this this, this metaphor, this analogy here, this, this imagery that he is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. A lamb, when he's led to the slaughter, doesn't speak. It doesn't squeal like a pig. A lamb is slaughtered, and it makes no noise. That's why he uses this language. But it's even interesting that when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time in the first chapter of John, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. The one who will be slaughtered but will make no noise. He will not defend himself, even though he had all the right to do so. He will be afflicted and oppressed, but, which, which is injustice. He, he is one who didn't deserve this, but yet he will not speak against it. He will not prevent it. He will not block it. He's like a lamb led to the slaughter, like led to the shears. He is the Passover lamb who lays himself on the altar to be Killed to be slain for the forgiveness of sins. I'm, I wrote a paper in my doctorate program about Scandinavia, and I lived in Scandinavia for a year, and we lived in the city of Uppsala, which is actually the religious hub of North mythology. There's actually a little temple that they have on, on display that you can walk into that is the exact record of what a North mythology temple would look like. And it has the Viking mounds and stuff. So you walk through there, and they have these huge hills that the Vikings would have buried all their, their resources and all their belongings and all their slaves and wives as well, and horses and all other such. And um, they would have this ceremony, and the, the Vikings would have this ceremony. They would go to Uppsala every ninth year, and they would sacrifice nine living things. And yes, that included humans. Nine male living creatures. They would, they, would, they would sacrifice horses and dogs and humans along, uh, together. And they would hang them from the trees. So you'd have these dead corpses hanging from the trees that have just been drained of its blood for the sacrifices to appease the gods. 
I mean, it's quite brutal. If, you, if you've seen the TV show The Vikings, there's actually an episode about this ceremony, and there's human sacrifices. And these, but they would sacrifice these animals, for, I mean, these, these creatures, to appease the gods so that they would give them, that women, children, that they would have crops and these such of things, victories and war. But it's interesting that we have here, we have God, we have the Son of God, who is the one being sacrificed to appease his Father. Human sacrifices are made to appease the gods, but yet God makes appeasement to himself. He doesn't ask us to sacrifice things to appease him. He sacrifices his actual son. His son becomes the Passover land and lays his life down for forgiveness of sins. The servant is submissive to the will of his father completely. He is submissive to the will of his master completely. He willingly submits to the will of his father. Uh, Psalms 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for him, talking about Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What's so interesting about this passage is that Jesus could have said something and stopped it. Like, Jesus is not some pitied foe who's just, oh, poor Jesus, the hands of the Romans, what injustice. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe he did not deserve to die. He was innocent. He was innocent. But you understand that he had all power. He had ultimate power. He was the son of God, and he submitted to the will of his father. That's very significant, that he could have spoken the words, go away, and they would have gone away. He could have spoken the words, stop, and it would have stopped. He could have said, no more, and it would have been no more. I mean, he told the seas to be calm. He raised the dead. He healed the blind and the deaf. He could do anything that he wanted, but he submitted to the will of his Father. That is extremely significant in this, because if we look at the crucifixion, if we look at Jesus' suffering as this simply, he was suffered at the hands of the Roman Empire, he suffered in the hands of, of evil Jews, and we miss the understanding that this was all a part of God's plan. And that Christ submitted to the will of his Father completely. That's what a servant does. A servant doesn't tell his master, no. A servant doesn't tell his master, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm going to do part of that or partial of that, but I'm not going to do the full of that. A servant follows the will of his master. And Christ's master, his father, his, he submitted to his father's will completely. I think that's very significant. Point number two is the show of power in suffering. The show of power and suffering. You know, I don't know if you remember this in uh, 2000, and, I guess it was 2001, 2002, maybe it was 2002, when the United States military uh, attacked Iraq, when they invaded Iraq. You know, I remember, if you remember what they called it, the shock and awe tactic, right? In the sense that on one, one occasion, you drop as many bombs as possible to shock and awe the enemies so they give up. And that's basically what, if you watched it on CNN, it was just like, bomb, bomb. I was watching it this morning, and just the kind of the footage that CNN had, it was like, you watched it, and bam, bomb, 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 all over Baghdad. And it was shock and awe. And you see the power of the U.S. military exposed and displayed in that particular situation. Regardless if you agreed with the invasion, regardless if you agree with the war, you, you, can't, you have to admit that there was a lot of power displayed in that 
moment in that day. I remember if you remember the first Gulf War, I remember as a child watching the tracers on CNN of the, of the anti, anti-aircraft uh, sh- um, bullets from the Iraqi military and the U.S. just dropping bombs and, and showing the power of the U.S. military. We think about power, we think about it militarily, like when the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we see this massive display of power. We see even politically the power of the president, right? The president can write executive orders. He can order troops to go into war or go into do other things. He can send the U.S. Navy SEALs to go and attack some terrorist camp. Talk about signing laws, the power to sign his name and laws are enacted. There's a lot of power that we see politically or militarily, and we can understand what power is. But in this particular chapter, we don't really see power, do we, in the way that we understand power. We don't see violence. We don't see strength. We don't see military conquest. We don't see triumph. We don't see victory. We don't see kingship or this idea of lord. We see a servant. We think of servant or slave. We don't think of power, do we? We think of someone who doesn't have power. Think of someone who is powerless or weak, who has no rights, who has no authority. But yet, in this chapter, we do see the show of power and suffering. What does it say in verse 8? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away from us. He was taken away from his generation, talking about the Jewish people, his generation. He was taken away, he was cut off, he was removed, he was killed. And it says... Who considered that he was divided or cut off from the land of the living? I mean, he was one who died. He was one that was punished. He was one who was oppressed. He was one that was afflicted. He was one that was a man of sorrows. He was one that was marred by his appearance. He was one who was not seen as someone important or valuable or worth, full of worth. So his generation considered him cut off, someone who was not important. They killed him. He died on a cross. He was crucified by the Romans. He was put in a tomb. He was not important. Someone to be forgotten. A blip on the historical map. He was oppressed by judgment as well. He was taken from this generation. He was considered that he was divided from the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgressions of my people. All of this was for the transgressions of God's people. All of this, all of the oppression, all of the affliction, all of the punishment, all of the suffering is for the transgressions of God's people. What we see here is the power to save the sins of the lost. This is the power move. This is the, the, the strategy and the method and the means to save the lost, to save those who have been stricken by sin and have been re- rebellious, the ones that are, are full of iniquities and transgressions. The power to save them from that darkness is exposed here. Power is being exposed, and it's being exposed in the form of suffering. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 6. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the Spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones, and led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to those bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and thou shalt live. I will lay, lay sneeze upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and your breath, put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. That is power. To, try, to take dry bones and put life to them is power. And the means of that power is exposed here through the suffering of Christ. We don't see power. The way, that we, the way that we look at power is not, well, we overlook that. We see someone who is weak and powerless, but yet God was in control of all of this. Christ was in control of all of this, and he submitted to the will to redeem us. I love Colossians 1, 13 through 14. It's like one of my favorite passages. It says he, was, he has delivered us, delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That does not happen without power. Someone transformed from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, the kingdom of sin, and transferred to the kingdom of light and the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of godliness, the kingdom of, of purity and holiness in Christ doesn't happen without Power And the way that that was shown was through Christ's suffering. What did Jesus say to Pilate? That conversation that Jesus has with Pilate is interesting. I know it's mentioned, it's actually shown in the Passion of Christ, but it's in John chapter, and John chapter 19 when, when they have this conversation about truth. right? Because Pilate's saying, like, but they say you're the king. I'm, I'm going to change, just go over there and, and just look at it and read it. John 19. Actually, it's 18. And then in verse 33, they have this, this conversation. And so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? You own na your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. They would be protesting. They'd be outside your headquarters with signs and blowhorns and saying, release him. He's done nothing wrong. They would be, barring, they would be running, invading your gates with weapons to release me from your hands if my kingdom was of, was of this world. My kingdom isn't of this world. He continues, then Pilate said to him, so you are, you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone is of the truth, listens to me. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? Christ's kingdom is not of this world. But yet he came to bear witness to the truth that I have come to be afflicted by your hands so that your transgressions may be redeemed. That's his power. That's him showing his power. He is the one. Jesus, when he stands there before Pilate, Jesus has all the power in the universe. And he's standing before Pilate. Jesus' hands are tied behind him. There's a, there's a, a thorn, a crown of thorns on his head. He's, been, he, he's about to be beaten and he's been slapped around all day. He has all the power in the world. And he says that my kingdom is not of this world. I come to bear witness to the truth. And what is the truth? Is that your sins are so evil, that your sins are so 
Hennius to my father that I came and suffered so that you could be redeemed. I mean, literally, that's what he's saying to Pilate, that I bear witness to the truth. The truth that you are a sinner, that you've rebelled against my father who created you, and I have come to save you. And this is how I'm doing it. I'm allowing you to take me. I'm allowing you to hit me. I'm allowing you to punish me. I'm allowing you to afflict me. I'm allowing you to put me on one of your crosses. When you think you have all the power, you have none of the power. I have all of the power. I can speak and it would stop, but I'm not because I come to bear witness to the truth. And the truth is is that you're sinful and you need me to do this to be saved. That's the story here. Jesus could have protested, he could have fought, he could have done anything that he wanted, and he was silent. The last point is this, is the servant of all, the servant of all. A Christian is utterly a free man, Lord of all, subject to none. Martin Luther had these uh, paradoxes. This is one of his paradoxes, that a Christian, one who is following a Christ, is utterly free. They are Lord of all. They're subject to none. They've been redeemed by God. They are free. But a Christian is also utterly dutiful, dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. What does he mean? So one of the things about this is that we can talk about the suffering of the servant. We can talk about Christ suffering on the cross, how it redeemed us of our sins. But there's even more going on than that is that when we trust in him, when we put our faith in him, we also take on the same characteristics of a servant. Because that is the ethic of his kingdom. The kingdom is one who is, who is started, inaugurated, ushered into the world by a servant. So obviously the citizens of his kingdom would also be servants. We're not better than our master, are we? Jesus said that to the disciples. You're not better. Who's better than their master? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Jesus is a servant. And so therefore his citizens of his kingdom, his followers, his people are also servants. What does Jesus say the greatest commandment is in Matthew 22? To love your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your enemy in, in Matthew, chapter, Matthew chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemy. It's easy to love your family. It's easy to love your friends, but to love your enemy, I call you to love your enemy. That's the ethic that we are called to, the servant to all. We follow Christ, who was a servant, who was the great servant, and we follow him into that servant, servanthood. And look to Christ, who displayed the destiny. What is the destiny of servanthood? What is the trajectory of servanthood? Triumph. Victory. See, we have gotten blinded or deceived in this world to think that if we have power, if we have money, if we have wealth, that is how we influence the world. But Jesus didn't have wealth. Jesus didn't have political or military power, and he had quite a lot of influence. The way that we influence the world is by following in the footsteps of Christ, by being servants to all, by loving our neighbor as ourself. Servanthood is elevated in Christ's kingdom. What does Ephesians 5.21 say? Submitting to one another in reverence to Christ. We submit to one another. We're servants to one another. We're slaves to one another because that brings glory to the great servant, to the great king, the great Lord who became a servant to save us, who humbled himself to save us. I love that conversation 
Um, obviously, we sing that song, The Son of David. But that, that story that happens right before um, that event of the, the blind man in Matthew chapter 20, um, talking about uh, James and John and, and, and their uh, kind of conversation. Because their mother come, comes to Jesus and says, hey, can my son sit at your right and left? And what does Jesus say? That, and he says, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great, the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Too often we are fighting for power amongst our church, or even our churches try to fight for power. Pastors fight for authority and power and influence and popularity. But what does Christ say? He says, be a servant to all. The greatest in my kingdom are servants. Then we have to come to believe that servanthood and following in the footsteps of Christ is the best trajectory for our life. That loving people in our neighborhoods or loving people at our works or loving uh, family members or loving other people in our lives, loving them and putting them before ourselves is the trajectory to victory and triumph in this world. We have to believe that. Christ believed it. God, Christ exposed it. Christ displayed it. Christ set the example for us to follow. He set the model for us to follow that suffering and serving other people is the trajectory for triumph. And for victory, servant to all. I want to close with this. Uh, Richard uh, Warmbrand, the Romanian uh, who suffered by the hands of the, of the communist, he has a, a, a sermon called, I am talking about Christ, uh, being Christ, uh, being humbled like Christ. And he talked about Paul who said in 1 Corinthians that I became nothing. I am nothing. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says, I am nothing. And so Richard Wainwright, we talked about when he, was in, when he was in prison, when he was suffering by the hands of the, of the communists, he was crying out to God for, for help, and he was crying out to God like, you know, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my people? And he asked, he asked himself these questions. He says, what is my name? And he says, my name is Richard. And he starts to think of other men in church history who also were named Richard and who suffered at the hands of, of injustice, but yet stood for God and stood strong for the name of Christ. He said, whoa, I'm not really living like Richard. And he asked himself, well, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? What does that mean? If I'm a Christian, what does that mean? It means my life has been redeemed by Christ, that I've been bought by the blood of Christ, that I follow Christ. I don't follow some other path of life. My life is not about gaining money or power or comfort or anything else. My life is about glorifying Christ alone. He says, I'm a pastor. Well, what does a pastor do? A pastor serves people. A pastor is one who proclaims the gospel, one who teaches the word of God, who is a shepherd of people. And so he asks himself the question, what is my responsibility in my life while I'm sitting here in prison and I'm going through such extreme suffering? And he says that my role is to bear the name of Christ, to deny himself, that Christ lives in me and I am nothing. Nothing. I am nothing. 
Too often we don't say that to ourselves. We say we are something. We have rights. We have, we have um, things we deserve. We have entitlement. We deserve such, certain such and such things and that we need to be treated such a way. And so we protest. We say injustice, 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 injustice. We stand out on the, on the corners and scream and scream and scream. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but we are nothing. We are servants to all. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a servant to your friends and to your neighbors and to your employees. You are a servant to them because you are nothing. In Christ, you live in Him. He is everything and you are nothing. You take on His identity. You are no longer just your individual self who has all your individual rights, but you are Christ. And you're a servant not only to Him, but a servant to all. So I want to encourage you that if you are a follower of Christ, to realize that you're a servant to all, just like Christ displayed here in Isaiah 53. And also to understand that if you're not a follower of Christ, that Christ showed his power by suffering. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I praise you for your word. And Lord, I pray for those in this room who, um, who are fighting, Lord, for some type of power, some type of identity. And maybe it's they feel like they don't have as much money as they should, they don't have as much opportunities as others. And, Lord, they're angry. They're not satisfied and content with what they have. and They blame others for the reason why they don't have what they should. History has shown that the people of this world are fighting for power and there's violence and wars and fighting for materials and ownership and means of production and all of these things, Lord. And then Christ comes along and shows us what true power is. Truth through power. He exposes us, Lord, to our sin and he exposes us to God's love for us and God's mercy and grace for us through his suffering, and he says, trust in me and follow me, and I will give you all power. I will give you identity. I will give you a status, and I will make you a child of God. You will be hidden in me. You will live in me. Lord, I pray for those who don't believe that, who don't Trust that who don't experience that. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them faith to trust in your love, to trust in your grace, to trust in your provision for them. You suffered for them. You made no noise for them. You hung on a cross for them. You were buried for them. And you rose from the dead to conquer sin and death for them. Lord, it's a provision of salvation. It's a provision of rescue. And Lord, may they not leave today without embracing it, without taking it, without receiving it. And pray, Lord, that they would talk to one of us and they would embrace the saving grace that you offer through your suffering servant. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>